You're listening to audio from Citizens Church, located in Plano, Texas. For more information about this ministry or to give to this ministry, please visit citizenschurch.com. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Seeing the crowds, he went up on the mountain. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people. When you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debts. Do not lay up treasures on earth. Lay up treasures. Do not be anxious about your life. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Ask and it will be given. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be. Everyone who hears these words of mine and does. Be like a wise man who built his house when Jesus finished saying these things, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth as it is. 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 In heaven. Good morning. If you've got your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be in Matthew 5, 5 this morning. We'll also look at a couple of other uh, passages. Uh, if you are new here, I want to introduce myself. My name is Jamin. I am one of the lead pastors here at Citizens Church. So grateful that you are uh, visiting us now. Uh, maybe you're visiting us even online. Uh, to all those who are watching online at home, so grateful that you uh, joined us in worship. Uh, we are in our fourth week in our series in the Sermon on the Mount. It's going to be our third week in the list of sayings that Jesus begins the sermon with called uh, the Beatitudes. And so uh, Carrie and I went on our uh, very first date in College Station in September of 2005. Uh, up until that time, I had not been on a lot of dates. In fact, um, Carrie was the first girl I ever went on a date with, which uh, is sweet now, but I feel like, uh, to be clear, it wasn't like I was holding out. There just wasn't a whole lot of opportunity before that. So uh, I was nervous, and um, I was new to the whole scene, and so before uh, our date, I was with two uh, friends, and I use that term loosely, you'll understand why in a minute, um, and I was talking about the date, and they uh, proceeded without invitation to tell me how I should act on the date to make sure that it goes well. It's like, here's how you behave on a first date uh, to make sure that that, that first date um, leads to more dates, and the first guy said, here's what you do, man, don't act interested. You want to make her feel like you'd rather be somewhere else, is what he said. He was uh, single, of course. Uh, the, the other guy was like, hey, be funny. You want to make her laugh? And I was like, okay, I can, I can try. And he said, also, you need to talk about your ex-girlfriend a lot. And I said, I don't, I don't have an ex-girlfriend. He's like, doesn't matter. It's like, honesty's not part of this deal. Um, he said, you want to talk about her a lot, talk about the ways that she's not like, you know, like Carrie. And... Uh, at some point, I, I just stopped and said, hey, like, what if I'm, what about just being myself? And they looked at me like, come on, man, take this seriously. It's a big deal. And so it was awful advice, right? It was kind of like Job's friends, I guess. Um, but they were offering their understanding, right? Their limited, ignorant, foolish understanding of how to be on a first date to make that first date go well. Uh, and what happened was we went on a date, took her to a super fancy place called Chili's, and uh, it went really well, and so it led to more dates. And, and pretty early on, um, I realized that this relationship was really serious, and I had serious hopes 
for this relationship. And, and if this relationship was going to go where I wanted it to, then I was going to have to welcome some voices into my life. And, and that's ended up what happening, not foolish voices, but talking to my mom and my dad, talking to pastors, really asking them, what does it look like to do this well? Uh, what does it look like to be in a dating relationship that I hope would lead to engagement, that I hope would lead to marriage? And what does it look like to, to, to navigate through that in a way that leads to things going well for us? Like, how do I need to be? How does she need to be? What boundaries do we need to have? And so a lot of those voices were coming into my life because it was really a new era of life for me. It was a new season of life for me, the season of being in a very serious relationship that we wanted to be pure and wanted to lead to the covenant of marriage. And so in that, you've got a lot of voices that I'm inviting that are coming in saying, this is, this is how you be in that kind of relationship to make it go well. So this is our third week in the Beatitudes, and from here we'll likely take them two at a time. This will be our last Sunday in just looking at one of them a week. But this is Jesus having a conversation. These Beatitudes, blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who are persecuted, blessed are the peacemakers. This is him offering his how to be in the world in a way that leads to flourishing. Um, This is how to act in light of the fact that a new era is coming in light of the fact that a new season is coming. And that era, that new season is the kingdom of God. He announces in his ministry, the kingdom of God is at hand. He's bringing the kingdom. And in light of the fact that things are changing, in light of the fact that the season is beginning to shift, this is how you operate in the world in a way that leads to the word that comes at the beginning of every single one of these is blessed are. And that word means successful. That word means flourishing. And so for the disciple, for the follower of Jesus, this picture of life that Jesus offers is a way of being in the already not yet of the kingdom that Jesus describes as flourishing, as thriving in the world. And we've said this, they're countercultural, they're upside down, but what Jesus says is it's the poor in spirit, those who know that there's a spiritual poverty who are the ones who are going to be met by God, who are going to, uh, theirs is the kingdom, right? It's those who, like we said last week, respond to suffering by mourning, not respond to suffering and pain by ignoring it or dishonoring it or idolizing it. It's those who mourn, those who carry their grief to God are the ones who are what? Comforted. This is a way of being in the world, a way of operating that leads to this flourishing life. This morning, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. So there's a way of being in the world because the kingdom is coming that leads to flourishing, and it's by being meek, by being gentle. So I believe it's God's kind providence that he has us in this passage. I think it's God's kind providence that he has us in any passage on any Sunday, but I think this is an especially important passage, particularly for for where we are uh, in this moment culturally. So for me personally, this idea of meekness, it holds a lot of hopes that I have for Citizens Church. It holds a lot of hopes I have for, for our church, for who we are and who we'd become. If you were to ask, uh, you know, Jamin, you get one word to describe uh, what you hope the people of Citizens Church are like, one of those words would be meek. One of those words would be gentle. Um, it belongs to the family of humility, right? And so I've been beating this drum a little bit already. Uh, when we were in the series in Colossians, we spent an entire Sunday talking about how uh, men in their homes are to be a gentle presence in their home. 
uh, a gentle husband, a gentle father. The word gentle and the word meek, they're, they're interchangeable. They're the synonymous throughout the New Testament. Uh, we talked about wisdom about two months ago and talked about how wisdom is humble. There is a meekness to wisdom. So, so all that to say this, full disclosure, I don't know if this is a hope that you have for your life, but whatever uh, role I get to play in, in that, uh, I am trying to lead us towards meekness. I, I, I want to hold out the vision of the meek life as a life that's, that's worth living. So if you're new here and you're trying to figure the church out right now, maybe you're trying to figure me out right now, you're like, who is this guy? He looks like he's 21, thank you. Uh, what is his uh, agenda, right? I'm, I'm telling you now my agenda, which I humbly submit to you, I think is God's agenda, uh, is that we would become meek people that over and again hold out the vision of a life that is gentle and hold out the vision of a life that is meek over and against the vision of an aggressive life or a self-promoting life or a divisive life because that's the vision that surrounds us. And it's important because these are not times, um, these are not times right now that draw people into meekness or that draw people into gentleness and humility. Let me ask a question I already know the answer to. In 2020, have you encountered a lot of people who are gentle? Have you encountered a lot of people who are meek? Um, the reality is this, that these are times where there is a lot of loss of control, or these are times where there's a lot of maybe even just perceived loss of control. And these are times that are dominated because of that loss of control or perceived loss of control. These are times that are dominated by the twin emotions of fear and of anger. Because fear and anger are ways that we respond when we're trying to not lose control or when we're responding to the feeling of having lost control. And look, meekness is not the weapon to wield if control is what I'm after. It's just not. Gentleness is, isn't, doesn't protect me from the threats against my life. Meekness is not the way to make sure my opinions are heard. But friends, make no mistake, Jesus' words have not expired just because we're in times that are unprecedented. What is the way to live through these times? through these difficult times, through these divisive times, what will carry us through the fall into January? Meekness. So here's, here's my hope this morning. At the very least, my hope is that this idea of meekness makes it into our lives, uh, that this idea of meekness makes it into our way of thinking as we evaluate our, dis our following of Jesus. That maybe at the end of this, if it's not true already, that one of the questions you're asking about your relationships, about how you see God, about how you're navigating these times, one of the questions you're asking is, have I been meek? Am I operating in meekness? Here's my two points today. That meekness is, here's the vision of the meek life. Uh, meekness is the way of the kingdom, and meekness is the very heart of the king. Meekness is the way of the kingdom. It's the heart of the king. We'll start in Matthew 5.5. 5. We'll go to a few other places this morning. Matthew 5.5 5 says, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. The meek in this context, remember Jesus is uh, 2,000 years ago, he's on the side of a hill just north of the Sea of Galilee, surrounded by unimpressive people in a really obscure place. And when he says meek, uh, the meek that he has in mind are the, the powerless. These are people who belong to a, a class of people, kind of like when we talked about the poor in spirit. They have no clout, they have no influence. The meek have no claim over the kinds of things that make people powerful according to earthly standards. So there's no money, there's no influence, there's no following, there's no authority. So that's who the meek are. They're the fringes. They're the outcast. They're the walked on and overlooked and unseen and stepped over. Look what Jesus does with them. 
Jesus takes the powerless and he's going to make them the victors of the greatest power struggle of their day and the greatest power struggle of their religious history. What happens to the meek? They inherit what? The earth. That word earth in Greek also means land. And what Jesus is calling to mind is he's calling to mind the piece of land that is modern-day Israel-Palestine. Uh, that was the promised land. That was the land that God promised in the Abrahamic covenant. It's the land that God re-promised in the Davidic covenant for the Jew in the first century. Being free to rule that land and worship God was an essential part of life. It was an essential part of life. Things were not right in your, if you're a Jew living in the first century, you actually believe in God, you follow God, there's some level of devotion in your heart. Uh, the world is not right until your people live in that land without oppression. And when Jesus preaches that sermon, that land was ruled by Rome and had been for a long time. In fact, there was this long history of violence and power over that land, much like there still is today. That land had changed hands every few hundred years for 700 years. 700 years before Jesus preaches the sermon, it's ruled by Jews, and then they are overthrown by the Assyrian Empire around 726 BC. And then in 586 BC, the Babylonians defeat the Assyrians and they take over. And then a few hundred years after that, the Persians beat the Babylonians and then they take over. A few hundred years after that, the Greeks come in, they beat the Persians, they made a movie about it, and then they take over. And then a few hundred years after that, Rome comes in. A guy named Pompey storms into Palestine in 63 BC. He overthrows the Greeks and then Roman occupation moves into that land and it would stay in Israel for almost 400 years. Just for some context, uh, America, if I did my math right, we just celebrated our 244th birthday last July. If we hold on another 155 years, we will then and only then be old, as old as Rome occupied Israel as the time that that one empire um, exercised powerful oppression over that land. And so here's what you need to know. In every one of those change of hands, from Assyria to Babylon to Persia to the Greeks to Rome, in every one of those change of hands, there's this violent war. And then within every one of those occupations, there are multiple little violent rebellions. And so here's what that meant. That meant the Jewish people were oppressed their life was filled with difficulty. They have watched for centuries as powerful empire after powerful empire come into the land that was promised to the Old Testament people. These are people who believed that they had a right to the land and they had lived for hundreds of years with no rights in the land. And so the question of the day, the, the most uh, heated and passionate and important current event of their lifetime is who is going to win this land? Who's going to win the land war? Uh, how long will Rome rule? Who's going to secure this land back for the people of God? It goes back to what we said two weeks ago, and there are a lot of front runners who everyone believed if they're going to get the land back, it's going to be them. It's going to be the zealots who are going to try to seize it through violent power. It's going to be the Pharisees, the religious elite that are going to get it through this external self-righteousness. Maybe it's going to be the cultural elite who are going to get it through compromise or through influence. They're going to exercise political power. It's all of these groups who have this kind of earthly power and who's going to prevail, who's going to win out, who's going to win the fight for the land. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the land. Everyone is warring over the land. Don't miss this. And Jesus weighs in and says, you know who will get it are the ones who have no power to actually fight for it. The ones who always and have been for centuries on the losing end, no matter who had power. And this would have just been so shocking to hear from his mouth. 
Uh, I'm using this not as a critique. I'm using this really as an illustration, so hear me carefully. But the greatest power in our struggle right now is over the upcoming election. You've got two parties warring over the office of president. Can you imagine Jesus right now in October looking towards November? Can you imagine Jesus saying, blessed are those who don't have a vote. They will inherit the country. Imagine Jesus saying, blessed are those who don't have access to media outlets and debate stages and huge donors and political strategists. Blessed are those who aren't even in the fight. They will win the country. That's how it would have landed on the side of the hill 2,000 years ago, north of the Sea of Galilee. Jesus is highlighting here that the way of the kingdom is marked by this incredible reversal where the proud are brought down and those who are on the ground are the ones who are lifted up. Why? Why is it that the meek are the ones who get this honor? Well, let me answer the question with a question. Whose power is displayed if the violent overthrow and win? Whose power is displayed if there's some sort of political coup or compromise? Well, man's power is. Human power is. Whose power is displayed if the meek get the land? God's. Like, you see this in the verb that Jesus uses. What do the meek do? Do the meek seize the land? No, they don't. Do they conquer the land? No, the meek inherit the land. That's passive language. Here's the point. Who gets an inheritance? Children do. And what does a child do to get an inheritance? Nothing. An inheritance is not something you get through achievement. It's something you get through relationship. And not relationship you earn, but relationship that you're born into and didn't decide. And that's the point. Jesus is saying the land ultimately belongs to God. The promise to the people of God ultimately is God's promise. The sovereign control over all things that belongs solely in the hand of God. And, and, and for the ones who try to rely on their own power to conquer will lose. But those who have no power are the very ones who have access to God's power and they will be the passive victor in the fight. It's the meek child who gets everything because he belongs to a powerful father who owns all things, controls all things. And they even get more. Here's, here's how the story unfolds. We don't have time, but, but how the story unfolds, what we know now that they didn't know then on the side of the hill is that Jesus doesn't just have in mind that piece of land that is modern-day Israel-Palestine. When Jesus says they'll inherit the earth, he has in mind a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem that comes down out of heaven, and, and it, is, it is earth and heaven reunited, and that comes as an inheritance to those who depend on God. The meek in their dependence on God, let me put it like this, the meek do not try to earn what God has promised to give. They don't try to, in self-reliance, seize what God has promised to gift, either now or in the future. Meekness is the way of the kingdom. The meek are those who wait for and rely on God's power. Jesus' mom said it best as a newly pregnant teenager who just had her world turned upside down from a message from an angel. She goes to her cousin, she sings this song, and she says, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. That's the way of the kingdom that those who are on the ground are lifted up. Those who have exalted themselves have, are brought low. Uh, Spurgeon said about Matthew 5.5, 5, the way to rise in the kingdom is to sink in ourselves. The, the way to ascend, the way of the kingdom is meekness. And so the way of ascension is actually the road of descending. 
descending from self-reliance, descending from looking to our resumes in a way that promotes our own power. So uh, we're not in the land struggle in, in that sense. The context for us is different. What would meekness, what would the way of the kingdom look like now? It looks like in all of our circumstances, whether we have a lot or a little, whether things are going our way or not, in all of our circumstances, depending on God and looking for ways in meekness to display God's power, to trust in God. Uh, my mom got uh, really sick last February. And many of you prayed for her then because it got, it got pretty scary there for a few days. Uh, and in February, she improved a, a little bit, but, but not much. And basically, she has remained sick since February, um, really sick since February. She had had a surgery in February that didn't work, and she needed another surgery. But by the time they figured out that she needed the other surgery to actually heal her, uh, because of COVID, that surgery was considered elective. And so she had to wait until a hospital would approve her being able to have that surgery, which I know is many people's experience in a lot of different ways with, with health concerns these last few months. Um, they did not approve that surgery until about a month ago, and so she didn't have the surgery until about two weeks ago, and here's what that meant for her. That meant the last six months of her life, she's been really sick. Uh, she has lost weight that she did not have to lose. She's a really small woman. Uh, she has missed out on life that she didn't want to miss out on. She's been, she's been circumstantially lowered in so many ways. She got to have the surgery that she needed two weeks ago, and she called me uh, one morning, and she said, hey, I want to FaceTime the, the kids tonight, and uh, it was the night before her surgery. She would be in the hospital for 10 to 14 days, uh, mostly by herself, and so she called. She said, I want to FaceTime the kids tonight. I want to talk to the kids, and, and she called, and when she FaceTimed that night, she said, I want to speak to each of you. She wanted to talk to each of her three grandchildren. She had done the same thing with her four other grandchildren, and she looked at my kids, one by one, and she said, you know, Grandma's going to be in the hospital for a long time, and I'm going to have a long time just laying there and trying to heal, and, um, and I would like to know how I can pray for each of you in that time. Uh, I'm going to be in a bed, unable to move for a lot of hours, and I want to use that time to pray to God for you, grandchild. And so my kids answered. Uh, my oldest said, school's been super boring. Would you pray about that? And my middle child said, you know, she's been having some bad feelings at night and asked her to pray for that. My youngest, my two-year-old, asked her to pray for our horse. We don't have a horse, but maybe that's part of the prayer. <laughs> and she told each of them that she would be praying, and she did. That's how she spent her time in the hospital. She was released five days earlier than they said, and she's doing okay now. But friends... Uh, that is meekness. That's what it looks like to be meek. Think about this with me. She does not want these circumstances that she has. And sickness has been her life for half a year. And she could have been overcome in that moment, looking at another surgery, unsure of what the outcome's gonna be, unsure if it's actually gonna work. And she could be overcome with fear or she could be overcome with bitterness. She could have in that moment, the, the night leading up to the surgery, she could have used her words to wound someone because that's so often what we do when we feel powerless. And instead, she's meek. And instead, she puts God's power on display in her life. Instead, she says to God, God, I don't want these circumstances. I want out of these circumstances. But in these circumstances that I don't want to be in, I'm not going to miss a chance to depend on you and to display your power. And there's not a lot I can do, but I can pray. And I believe that my prayers can do a lot. 
And I just think about what her grandchildren will remember. They'll remember that the night before a scary surgery, Grandma called because while she was stuck in a hospital, she wanted to talk to God about me. Think about that. That's meekness. And uh, I think maybe the thing that is most difficult about the meek life is that meekness is mostly hidden like that. That while she's in the hospital praying for her grandchildren, there's a lot of things going viral on the internet. There's a lot of arguments on display. There's a lot of division on display. And what we can easily be led to believe is that the real power is held in what's happening online or the real power is held in what's happening in Washington. And the way of the kingdom would look into a hospital room, a grandmother lying on her back, praying for her grandchildren and saying that's where the power of the kingdom actually is. That's how it's carried forth. The meek shall inherit the earth. The humble will be exalted. The way to rise in the kingdom is to sink in ourselves. I want to consider another really important passage about meekness as the way of the kingdom. James chapter 3. You can turn there if you'd like. It'll be on the screen behind me. James chapter 3. James is uh, in verses three or 13 through 17. James is writing to a people. You have to hear the context or this won't make a lot of sense. James is writing to a people who pride themselves in what they know. And they pride themselves in being right about what they know. They pride themselves in having the right view of God, the right view of things that are controversial, the right view of theology, the right view of life. And James is going to interact with them around their confidence of all that they know. He says this in verse 13, who is wise in understanding among you? Okay, so he says, I hear a lot of you claim to know things about God. And I hear that a lot of you claim to know things about life. And then he invites them to step forward for a conversation. He invites them to step forward for inspection. Who is wise in understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the what? In the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exists, there will be disorder in every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. It's this, please hear me. It is this brilliant invitation, and it's also an invitation that is a scathing invitation in, in divided times. Who is wise? Who has understanding? Who's got the right answer? I mean, who has uh, the clear position on some theological issue, some complex issue, where many are confused, who out there sees clearly, who is really eager to straighten everyone out on Twitter or on Facebook? James, the brother of Jesus, gives that cattle call to that kind of person, and he calls them forward, not to hear their argument, but to inspect their life. And he's looking for something. He's looking for one thing. Among those who claim they know what's right, among those who claim they've got all of the right answers, among those who claim that they're the ones who know God and who are right about God, he's looking for one thing in their life, meekness. He says, who has understanding among you? Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. If you have understanding, if you are actually right, if you, are, if you hold to the truth, that's going to come out of your life as meekness. It's going to make you a meek and a gentle person. But if surrounding all of your answers is jealousy and strife and division and selfishness, it doesn't matter if you're right 
because you don't even believe your own answers, according to James. That if you know the truth, it will be true, but if you actually believe it, it will be truth that is wrapped in gentleness, or the way Jesus puts it, truth wrapped in grace. He is holding them, this is so important, he is holding them to the standard of not simply knowing what is true, but what they know actually changing who they are. In Christianity, in Christianity, there is a what to believe, and then there is a how to hold those beliefs. There's a what to believe. There's the orthodoxy. There's our statement of faith. It's what we believe about salvation, what we believe about God. And then there's a way to hold what we believe. And here's what James is saying. It, it cannot be overstated. What he's saying about the relationship between the two is that the way you hold the belief is what demonstrates whether you actually believe it. There is just no way to believe what we believe and not be meek people. There's no way to believe what we believe and not be humble people. We are created, not creator. We are saved, not savior. We are redeemed, not redeemer. We are rescued, not rescuer. We are delivered, not deliverer. Eternal life has been gifted. It cannot be earned. We are the undeserving recipients of the unconditional, unchanging, unwavering love of God through Christ. What is the word that should describe someone who believes all that? Meek, gentle, low to the ground, humble. You cannot be smug. You cannot be proud and believe that while you were a sinner, you were saved by grace through faith, not of works, but simply as a gift. That might be the right answer, but if that's the right answer and surrounding that right answer is a life that's marked by strife and slander and anger and jealousy, it means you don't believe your own answer. Christian, we are getting, maybe not getting, probably just feeding. Uh, if I think of evangelicalism right now, we are feeding a reputation in the world that we are a people who are loud about what we believe and harsh with all those who disagree. Citizens, church, let's not participate in that. There's a better way to hold our beliefs. There's a better way to have an impact in the world. There's a better way to declare truth in the world, and that way is meekness. I'm not saying compromise what we believe. I'm saying hold what we believe in a way that demonstrates we actually believe it, and that way is not through anger, and that way is not through sarcasm. That way is not through slander or jealousy. It's through meekness, and here's what's also true. If we are to hold the most essential belief with meekness, if we are to hold the essential belief of the gospel, of who Jesus is, of what Jesus has done, if that's to come out of our lives in meekness, how should we hold non-essential beliefs? Probably a little bit meeker. Like a non-essential belief about the election or a non-essential belief maybe about COVID or a non-essential belief about anything else. If the thing that's most important is going to come out in our life is humility, how about the things that are less important than that? How should those come out of our life? How about the things that are maybe even more complex where there's more confusion surrounding those things? Where there's people who can love God and be on one side and people who can love God and be on another side? Surely we can interact with one another in a way that is gentle, in a way that is meek. The way of the world is shouting and slander and attack. The way of the kingdom is truth from my mouth, substantiated by quiet in my heart. The way of the kingdom is truth from my mouth that is substantiated by quiet in my heart, gentleness in my heart. Meekness is the way of the kingdom. Meekness is also the heart of the king. Jesus, there's one place in all of the Bible where Jesus tells us what his heart is like. Only one place in all of the Bible where Jesus the king describes the condition of his heart it's Matthew eleven twenty eight and 29. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. 
according to Jesus, what is most true about who he is. He is gentle and lowly. Those, both of those words are interchangeable with the word meek. In his very heart, Jesus is meek. Who is Jesus? What's most true about him according to him? He is a meek human. He is the meek God-man. Matthew 12 makes the same point, uses Isaiah to describe Jesus. In verse 19, it says, he will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through to victory. Jesus is not loud in the streets. He doesn't carry himself as someone who shouts or is argumentative. In his meekness, he is available to the broken. It says a bruised reed. What a bruised reed was is they used reeds to make instruments in the first century. A bruised reed could not be made into an instrument. It was useless and it was used as firewood. A smoldering wick could not provide light. And so if it was smoldering, it was extinguished. Things that can no longer serve a purpose, things that have become useless are things that are discarded, but Jesus doesn't do that with people. People considered useless, those who are bruised by life, those whose energy and personality and strength has dimmed like a smoldering wick, Jesus does not dismiss them to the weary, to the tired, to the unproductive, to the ones who have nothing to offer. What is Jesus to them? He's meek. And what you see is that Jesus' meekness is not passivity. That's not what it means. Meekness is not laziness. Meekness is not a refusal to get involved. Meekness is not volunteering for the sideline, right? Meekness is a power that the powerful forfeit access to. What happens is in Matthew 21, Jesus rides into Jerusalem on a donkey, not a war horse. And it says it fulfills the prophecy that the king would come, not in strength, but in meekness. But it's a meekness that taps into the power of God that the powerful forfeit access to. He stood before his accuser silent. He had the power to destroy everyone. Remember when he's in the garden, he introduces himself. He calls himself the I am. And the, uh, and the, the troops that came to attack him, the ones who came to arrest him, they fall down on their back. And then Peter gets really excited and tries to get in on the action. He cuts a guy's ear off. And Jesus looks at him and says, shall I not drink the cup the father has asked me to drink? There's a turn that happens. Jesus shows, I can do power the way the world does power. I can do power the way that the earth does power. And yet, that kind of power would only crush the world. And he did not come to crush the world. He came to restore the world. And so the lion of the tribe of Judah is then led away as the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The singular, clearest picture in all of history of meekness is Jesus on the cross refusing to exercise self-preserving power and instead displaying self-denying power, sacrificial power. And the kind of power that we needed from him was not the worldly power that would destroy us, but the kind of power that comes from meekness, the power that says, I will not crush, I will be crushed. To hold out the vision for the meek life. When I talk about one of my hopes for us as a church is that we would be meek people. And one of my hopes at the end of our time together in another five minutes would be that we would maybe start to factor in the idea of meekness into how we evaluate our lives. It's simply another way of saying, I want us to be like Jesus. I want us to aspire to, to dream that the, that the vision of who we really want to become is no less than the vision of who Jesus is, who he was, who he showed himself to be. Are you meek? Do you deal gently with people in your lives? If you think about the, maybe the words that have marked your life the last week or the last few months, the thoughts that have marked your mind, are they meek thoughts towards others, towards circumstances, towards God? It's the way of the kingdom. It's the heart of the king. Is it true in your life? It's really hard. 
Um, I, I found myself ironically really irritated all week long as I prepared to preach a sermon on meekness. Um, and it's hard because especially now, so many of us are tired uh, and, and our, our tired processing is just always more difficult than when we have energy. Many of us are overwhelmed. Many of us are frustrated at the state of things. Many of us have been dealt with harshly. And because we've been dealt with harshly by others, we only know how to deal harshly with those in our lives. Many of us are harsh with ourselves. Many of us are trapped in this cycle in our minds where all we do is rehearse our own failures over and over and over again. And here's what's true. Meekness will not be offered from us until it's received by us. That is why it's such good news to know that it's the very heart of Jesus. We become meek by spending time with the one who is most meek, and that's Jesus. Dane Ortland, he's a pastor. He just wrote an entire book on the meekness of Jesus. The book is called Gentle and Lowly. He calls Jesus in that book the most approachable person who's ever lived. And he says this. This is a beautiful quote from his book. Jesus is not trigger happy. He's not harsh. He's not reactionary. He's not easily exasperated. He is the most understanding person in the universe. The posture most natural to him is not a pointed finger but open arms. Do you believe that about Jesus? Do you believe that what's most natural to him with you in your fatigue? Do you believe that's what's most natural to him with you in your failure? When you are the bruised reed, when you are the smoldering wick, what is most natural to Jesus is to open his arms to you. You know what he was to you the last time you failed? He was meek. Do you know what he was to you the moment of your greatest failure? He was gentle and he was lowly. You know, I just haven't been the parent that I want to be, and he understands. I just haven't lived the life that I thought I would, and his arms are open. I just feel like I have nothing left, and I have nothing to give, and I'm just constantly disappointing a bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not put out. Meekness comes from being with Jesus, who deals gently with us. We will become meek by being in his presence, by allowing his thoughts to interrupt our thoughts. If you spend a lot of time on social media, research says it makes you anxious. If you spend a lot of time paying attention to the news channels, it makes you angry. I don't have research for that. That's just common sense and common knowledge. <laughs> if you spend a lot of time with Jesus, it makes you meek. If you spend a lot of time allowing the picture that Jesus presents of himself to interrupt the one that we naturally have of God then we will be ministered to by his meekness and in turn we will live lives that follow the way of the kingdom and that mirror the heart of the king. I want to end this morning just inviting us to pray. Would you bow your head and close your eyes with me? This is a hope I have for us as a church because I believe it's a hope that God has for us, a desire that God has that we would become meek people. And so I just want to spend a minute, maybe what I can do in this moment is even just facilitate a conversation with you in Jesus, for, for those of you who the idea of a meek and gentle and lowly king is a foreign idea, can I introduce you to who Jesus actually is? That as you pray and you close your eyes now and you consider taking what we've heard from God's word and maybe the first place to go is guilt over all the ways you haven't been meek. And maybe the first place to go is to be trapped in all the reasons you feel you're justified in not being meek. Could I invite you, the first place you go is to Jesus, who himself and his very heart is meek. Would you pray, would you ask him to make you meek and gentle and lowly?
Would you pray that even now, the vision that you have of the one you're praying towards would not be a vision of Jesus who's disappointed or a vision of Jesus whose finger is pointed, but a vision of Jesus whose arms are open, eager to deal gently with you and humbly with you. God, we love you. And it's so counterintuitive because it feels like in times like these, in a culture like this, it's a time to, to rally around uh, strength of a kind, to rally around initiatives maybe, to rally around all these plans. And yet, what your word would teach us is that it's a time for the people of God to rally around meekness to rally around a gentle spirit, to rally around uh, speaking truths unequivocally, speaking truths uncompromisingly from our mouths that are substantiated by a heart that is quiet and meek. And in a world that is chaotic, that invites our hearts to be filled with chaos, we just have no shot at that without you. So would you help us? Would you move even now, Jesus? You've promised to be with us always, even to the end of the age. And so we believe that your meek presence is with us. You are dealing gently even now with your children, rather your brothers and sisters who are in the room. God the Father, you're eager to deal gently with your children. I just thank you. And I do pray, God, I, I do pray that this is something that marks us. It does, and I pray it continues to mark us as a church. And, and a church that is marked by meekness is going to make room for disagreement with one another. Uh, and more than that, it's going to pursue honoring one another, being patient with one another, all those that are around us in our lives. We love you and we thank you. Let me pray. Amen.